Chapter 20 of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2, by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Clara Barton's Death and Resurrection Clara Barton died young. Even to those who were near her, she never seemed to grow old. At ninety, there was no mark of physical infirmity upon her, nor was there any slightest slackening in the interest of the object for which so long she had cared. On her ninetieth birthday, she wrote to the Reverend Percy H. Hepler, Notwithstanding the much and more that has been said of age, and all the stress laid upon it, I could never see and have never been able to understand how it came to be any business of ours. We have surely no control over its beginning, and unless criminally, none over its ending. We can neither hasten nor arrest it, and how it is a matter of individual commendation I have never been able to see. I have been able to see painfully that the persistent marking of dates and adding one milestone to every year has a tendency to increase the burden of age and encourages a feeling of helplessness and release from activities which might be a pleasure to the possessor. I have given the exact age as recorded, lest I be suspected of trying to conceal it, but I have never since a child, kept a birthday or thought of it only as a reminder by others. Somehow it has come to me to consider strength and activity, aided so far as possible by right habits of life, as forming a more correct line of limitations than the mere passing of years. Something similar to this she said to the author, she had no pride in her great age. She did not like to be thought of as an old lady. Years were to her merely opportunities of service, not measures of life. Notwithstanding this attitude, which prolonged her life and kept her young in spirit, Clara Barton was nearing the end of life's journey. She had a heavy cold in the winter of 1908 and 1909, but fully recovered and never seemed better in health than in the summer of 1910 when she made her journey to Chicago referred to in the last chapter. Unfortunately, she reached New England in a cold summer storm which seemed almost like sleet, and her exposure seriously weakened her. She returned to Glen Echo in August, but did not fully recover her strength. That winter she had double pneumonia, and her physician told her that she had but one chance of life. I will take that chance, she said calmly. She took that chance and recovered. But she did not grow strong again. The news of the death of her niece, Mrs. Riccius, was a great shock to her. Her heart almost ceased to beat. 
always her concern for those whom she loved affected her more than anything that could happen to her. In the summer of 1911, she made her last visit to Oxford. She made the journey with no ill effects, but the summer did not bring her permanent improvement. Long years of constant work and the serious illness of the winter had caused a slight weakness in the muscular action of the heart. Otherwise, her physicians could find no organic ailment. When she was at work in Galveston in 1900, she was seriously ill. Her physician whispered to her nephew, Stephen, that she could live only a few hours. She overheard the word, and calling Stephen to her, whispered to him, I shall not die. Don't let them frighten you. In that spirit, she had met the numerous predictions of her death and the various illnesses of the years. But it was not so after the summer of 1911. She went back to Glen Echo without her usual invigoration from her weeks in New England. Still, she did not give up. She had periods of old-time vigor. Here is an entry in her diary for Friday and Saturday, February 11th and 12th, 1910. At night, I fold the wash of Monday for ironing tomorrow. Up at six. Commenced ironing and continued till all was done at one o'clock. At night took the clothes from the frames and put them in place, and felt that for once one thing was done as it should be. T'was finished before leaving. She commented on the bad behavior of the suffragettes, whom she believed to be injuring their cause by unwomanly conduct. A week later, we moved the large desk to my chambers from the dining-room below. A spacious desk it makes. One should be able to write a history of the world with such accommodations. She was concerned for her old and faithful horse, Baba, and when one night he was out in pasture and it turned somewhat cold, she could not sleep, but got up at four o'clock in the morning fed baba a full feed of corn and some fruit from the table and went back to bed her diaries of nineteen o seven had been neglected she tried to bring them up to date from her pencil notes it seems to have been a hard year for me it makes me tired to read it that spring she trimmed the rose bushes and set out flowers a fire broke out in her room. The floor grew hot from the burning out of the soot in a sheet-iron drum, and she got water and wet the floor till the chimney and pipe had burned out. She mourned over the death of Mark Twain. We have lost something very precious in his rich vein of humor. There are losses that are never made good. We have not another Whittier or another Mark Twain. The diary for 1911 begins with a multitude of Christmas greetings received and sent. 
the process took her several days and left her very weary this led her to reflect that she was kept so busy with inconsequential writing that she had no time to do the writing she so much wanted to do her life and the story of her work she had an invitation from the review of reviews to write an article on hospitals and hospital nurses of the civil war she declined on the ground that she knew nothing about the subject. She had not been a nurse and did not pretend to write as if she had been. This was in January, 1911, and in February she had pneumonia, but recovered. That summer she had two or more visits from a man who expressed himself with great emphasis on the subject of the immodesty of woman's dress she agreed with him but felt it was hardly fair to talk to her as if she were to blame or needed to be convinced but really he is not without provocation huge hats dangerous hatpins hobble and harem skirts and the conduct of the suffragettes are hard to defend most of her visitors just ran in from washington and ran away hurrying back to the city one day an old friend came and spent the afternoon and the night this day has been extremely social it is really refreshing to see a man who has a little time and not always in a rush with a watch in his hand to catch the next train I fail to believe that these nervous persons accomplish the most, or are actually the best businessmen. Hurry is a habit with them. They make everyone uncomfortable with their own selfish plans, and all are relieved to get them off and see them go. In April, she began to feel that she could take up and finish her History of the Red Cross. In that month, Dr. Hubble was grafting trees. She had always coveted the learning of that art, so she took lessons in tree grafting. Also, she began to learn the use of the typewriter at the age of 89. She was interested in the trial of the Los Angeles dynamiters, in the activity of Mr. Bryan, whom she wished the Democrats might have sense enough to nominate, and if a Democrat had to be elected, she, a Republican, wished it might be he. She read a life of the Bronte sisters. She read in good English translations the Apology of Socrates, the address of Xenophon to his army, some of the orations of Demosthenes, and other good old literature. She read the daily papers and commented on all important current happenings. She provided a final home for Baba, eighty miles away in Virginia, bade him a fond farewell, and sent money regularly to keep him well fed. In May, she wrote her will, the same will that was probated a few months later. 
she commented on the great suffrage parade in london with satisfaction that the cause of woman's suffrage was gaining but with rather sad reflection that fallible as men were she had found women even more so and she thought suffrage would be a blessing but not an unmixed blessing she salted down eggs in early summer and in the late fall they were candled and found good. She oversaw the management of her household, and part of the time she did her own cooking in this her last summer. These citations are given not because they are important in themselves, but because they give little glimpses of her life in her last few months. Certainly, she did not permit herself to rust out in mind or body. A physical examination after her recovery from pneumonia in 1911 found her with every bodily organ sound, but with a pulse somewhat easily disturbed. On Christmas 1911, her 90th birthday, she sent to the world through the press this message. Please deliver for me a message of peace and goodwill to all the world for Christmas. I am feeling much better today and have every hope of spending a pleasant and joyful Christmas, my 90th birthday. Her hope was fulfilled, and she celebrated her 90th Christmas with quiet but cheerful festivities. As the rigor of winter came on, she was taken again with double pneumonia. In the weeks that followed, hope alternated with fear, until, on April 12, 1912, at nine o'clock in the morning, she cried out, Let me go! Let me go! And the earthly life of Clara Barton came to its close. A few days before she died, she talked with her nephew Stephen concerning her funeral, and chose for herself the principal speakers. She desired that her long-time and trusted friend, Mrs. John A. Logan, should say the principal words in a preliminary service to be held in Glen Echo, and that at the main funeral service to be held in Oxford, the chief speakers should be her friend, the Reverend Percy Epler, and her cousin, the Reverend William E. Barton. She mentioned others as those whom she would be glad to have share in the services, and her wishes were carried out. On Sunday afternoon, a brief service was held at Glen Echo. The Reverend John Van Schaik, Jr., pastor of the Church of Our Father, Universalist of Washington, read the scripture and offered prayer. The Reverend W. W. Curry, a veteran of the Civil War, paid her a brief and heartfelt tribute, which was followed by three addresses, by Chaplain Codon of the House of Representatives, Mrs. John A. Logan, and the Honorable Peter V. DeGraw. The body reached Oxford in the early morning of April 16th, accompanied by Mr. and Mrs. Stephen E. Barton, Francis Atwater of Meriden, Connecticut, 
Dr. Eugene Underhill, President of the Nurses College of Philadelphia, and Dr. Julian B. Hubble. It had long since become apparent that no church in Oxford would contain the congregation. The service was held in Memorial Hall, which was filled to overflowing, and it was estimated that as many as five hundred people were unable to secure admission. Delegations were present from many cities, and representatives of various patriotic organizations were in attendance. Floral tributes had been received from many parts of the nation, and a magnificent wreath was sent by the grand duchess of baden the casket was almost hidden with flowers above it was a great red cross made of carnations and upon the casket was a large bouquet of red roses the flowers which all her life she most had loved and which had belonged to her family since the days of the wars of the roses Appropriate music was rendered by the Schumann Quartet of Boston, who sang sympathetically Tennyson's Crossing the Bar. The opening words of Scripture, I am the resurrection and the life, and of the comforting sentences, Let not your heart be troubled, were recited by the Reverend William E. Barton. The Reverend John P. Marvin read the Bible lesson. Mrs. Allen L. Jocelyn read a beautiful tribute from the town of Oxford, and Mr. J. Brainerd Hall of Worcester, a veteran of the Civil War, represented the Women's Relief Corps in a tribute which included the placing of a silk flag upon her breast as she lay in the casket. The two formal addresses were then delivered by the minister's whom she had chosen, the Reverend Percy E. Epler, pastor of the Adams Square Congregational Church of Worcester, and the Reverend William E. Barton of Oak Park, Illinois. For an hour after the service, the people filed through the hall and passed the casket for a last look at her face. The body was then borne to the hearse, escorted by a guard of the Grand Army of the Republic, its chaplain, H. A. Philbrook, and the color sergeant leading the procession. The North Oxford Cemetery has a beautiful and sightly elevation, containing the largest lot in the enclosure where for generations the Bartons have been buried. There her body was laid to rest, the hands of old soldiers lowering it to its last resting place. It was a glorious day in the spring. The services had begun at one o'clock, and as the procession entered the cemetery, the sun was near its setting. The cemetery was thronged with people, the crowd containing many who had been unable to secure admission to the hall. The music in the hall had been rendered by a male quartet. Clara Barton had never cared greatly for music, but the music that she liked best was that rendered by male voices or sung heartily by a congregation. In the cemetery one hymn was sung, Nearer My God to Thee, 
the whole great congregation joining in the singing. A prayer was offered by a blind soldier, Chaplain Simmons of Worcester. The closing scene can hardly be described. Dr. Barton took his place at the head of the grave, holding in his hand a large bunch of red roses, and the place at the foot of the grave was taken by the Reverend Dr. Tyler, Father Tyler, a venerable and saintly man, who had buried the fathers and mothers of the Barton family in Oxford. He stood with his long white beard and silver hair irradiated by the sunset, and in a voice tender and reverent and comforting, spoke the following words. In a few words, with which I am to close this service, I shall indulge in no repetition of what has been said, and so well said, by the principal speakers on this occasion, eulogistic of the life and the life-work of the most celebrated woman of the world, whose mortal remains we have here deposited in the resting place of her choice, among the beloved of her family. My thought will lead you in another direction, which has hardly been alluded to, if at all, in the eloquent addresses to which we have listened. As we look into the grave and bid farewell to the mortal remains of Clara Barton, we instinctively are led to ask ourselves, where is Clara Barton, who for more than ninety years made them the agencies of her great work in the world? The life, the spirit, the soul, has that been destroyed by death? Does utter annihilation follow the development and growth of such a life? As a Christian minister, I feel I give a voice to the scriptural revelation of life and immortality when I say emphatically, no, she still lives. She has entered the pearly gates of the holy city and is now walking the golden streets of the new Jerusalem. She has been born again into the newer life, as Christ taught the inquiring Pharisee, and our aged friend is now among the youngest of the immortals. I feel that while the nation mourns because of her going, all heaven is rejoicing because of her coming. This great gathering of friends who sorrowfully bid her goodbye is but typical of the greater multitude of friends who have gone before her, and who, with smiling faces and extended hands, have given her a heavenly welcome. In a little while, after the pain of our grief has softened, we shall be glad, and bless God that he has taken her to himself. Now we know nothing, or but little, of the vocations and employments of the eternal life, except concerning the angels as ministering spirits, they are nowhere revealed. But reasoning from analogy, I am convinced 
that as doing is necessary to our happiness here, so a busy activity must be essential to the happiness of heaven. In this regard, we may be assured that Clara Barton will not be found wanting. And so by faith, beholding her as a happy spirit and the glorious life to which she has been promoted, we may all join in giving to these relics of her earthly life as they peacefully rest for always in their last home a heartful, loving good-bye. At the close of this brief and touching address, Dr. Barton spoke the words of committal, and as he uttered, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, dropped upon the lowered casket the large red roses and pronounced the benediction. Just then a mother stepped up and whispered, My little girl was born in Clara Barton's birthplace, in the very room where she was born. Will you baptize her, and will you do it now? Bring her to me, said the minister, and I will christen her Clara Barton. So the name was bestowed in that hour upon another little girl, whose parents sought that the spirit that had lived in Clara Barton might live again in the life of their own daughter. Two years from the following summer, the world witnessed a desolating war, and the months that followed wrought their inevitable destiny by plunging America into the seething conflict. Long before America formally entered the fight, the American Red Cross was active in measures of relief for the sorrowing nations of Europe. When, at length, the United States itself entered the war, the Red Cross blazed forth in every community between the oceans. Churches and town halls and private homes became depots where supplies were collected, bandages rolled, and workers trained. Hospitals in our own country and along the battlefront were erected and equipped. To them went thousands of American young women, each of them wearing, on her arm or cap, the symbol which Clara Barton brought back to her own land after the close of the Franco-Prussian War. In their heroism and their deeds of mercy, Clara Barton lived again. The End End of Chapter 20 Recording by Phyllis Vincelli End of The Life of Clara Barton, Volume 2 by William Barton